we're looking at John chapter 4, verses 1 to 42, and God does speak it to us. He shows us his son. So let's all pray, asking him to work. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you do uh, speak the Bible to us. Thank you that as uh, we read it, we get to meet the Lord Jesus as in these pages of the Bible. Please help us to see him clearly. Please work by your spirit that we'd respond as we ought to him and to you. It's in his name we ask it. Amen. You'll notice those words about worshipping in spirit and truth. This is a passage which helps us think about Christian worship. Helps us think about who truly worships. What is worship in spirit and truth? What is a true worshipper? We'll get there, but let's start with a reminder. Just glance up a few verses. Uh, We're at the end of chapter 3, way back in February, with the other stuff about John the Baptist, and so it's been a while. You may remember that those last few verses of chapter 3 point to Jesus as the fulfillment of God's promise to send a prophet like Moses. That's from Deuteronomy chapter 18. Moses and all the prophets from Moses uh, to John the Baptist, they were ordinary humans who God lifted up and enabled by his Spirit to speak a message from heaven. But Jesus, he is the glorious and eternal Son who came down from heaven and who is enabled by the Spirit, given without measure, to speak a message from heaven. Jesus is the glorious and eternal Son who came down from heaven and is given the Holy Spirit without limit so that he speaks words of God. He is the prophet, the definitive prophet. At the end of chapter 3 is increasing while John the Baptist decreases. Then chapter 4. The Pharisees have begun to notice that Jesus is increasing uh, as John the Baptist decreases. Uh, So Jesus leaves Judea to travel the three-day walk or so north to, to Jewish Galilee, so Jewish Judea going up to Jewish Galilee. And to get there, he had to go through Samaritan Samaria. Samaritan Samaria, it stretched from the uh, Jordan River over to the Mediterranean, covered all that kind of block of land. And verse, th- verse 5 says that Jesus came to the town of Samaria called Sychar, uh, near the field of Jacob, uh, the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. That, that's the field, that's the one where um, Joseph's bones were brought out from the Exodus. Uh, so that he could be buried uh, back in uh, the promised land. Uh, The well is the one that Jacob had dug a previous generation. Uh, And it's a bit of a walk out of Sychar. Uh, Sits in the valley between Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. Those are kind of two kind of light-up names. Uh, If you've read Deuteronomy chapter 18 uh, recently, no, not 18, forget which chapter, um, 12 I think, um, two, two mountains and they, they're the ones where Israel were told to go to speak blessings and curses once they entered the promised lands. So Jesus is there and it's about the sixth hour, that's midday, split the day from uh, sunrise to sunset into 12, hour six, midday. It's hot, they've walked a long way already that day. 
and Jesus is tired. You see that in verse 6? He's weary from walking. He's resting beside the well. Does it surprise you that Jesus is weary? I think, I think it's at least a little bit surprising at this point in John's Gospel to find Jesus being weary. We met him as the Word who was God and with God in the beginning. He's the one through whom all things were made. He is the Almighty God who became flesh and dwelt among us. How on earth can he be weary? Why can God the Son be wearied from his walking? Well, he's worried because he is both fully God and fully human. He's both at the same time. The eternal word really became flesh. And what he actually became is actual flesh, truly human. He felt pain and limitation and everything that comes with being human. He understands our struggle. He knows what it is to be human. While he's weary and resting, uh, a woman from Samaria comes to get water from the well. Now, midday is an odd time to come to get water. It's the hardest time to, to work in the heat, to be pulling the water up out of the deep well. It's the hardest time to then carry that water back into town. And it's just the two of them there, because Jesus' disciples have gone off into the city to buy food while she's coming the other way. Jesus says to her, give me a drink. She says, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And the writer helpfully explains, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Now, there's so much history wrapped up in that little statement about Jews not having dealings with Samaritans. Uh, Samaritans were descended from the members, from members of the northern tribes who broke off uh, from, Ju- from Judea and, and King David back in 922 BC. Uh, 200 years later, when the Assyrians came uh, to, in conquest, they defeated those northern tribes. They exiled the leaders of the northern tribes, uh, left a lot of the Israelites still there, but also then imported people from foreign nations with their gods. And the Israelites intermarried the imports. And the Samaritans are their descendants. And they developed a separate religious tradition from the Judean uh, tribes. Uh, They only accepted the first five books of the Old Testament. They rejected all the rest. Uh, They thought that Mount Gerizim was the place that God chose uh, in order for he would be worshipped. And actually about 400 BC, they built a temple on Mount Gerizim uh, as a place where they would come and worship and sacrifice. And towards the end of the 2nd century BC, I think about 125, uh, uh, a Jewish uh, leader came and destroyed that temple as an affront to to God and the Jerusalem one. So you can imagine, you can see why Jews didn't have a lot to do with Samaritans. There wasn't a lot of warmth in the relationship. Jews saw Samaritans as children of political rebels, as racial half-castes, as practicers of a corrupt religion, 
They'd walk through the region, the region, yeah, but they'd have as little to do with the Samaritans as they could. They'd rather go thirsty and hungry than eat uh, or drink from a Samaritan's cup or plate. So while we're a little surprised to see that the word became flesh is actually weary, it helps to see he's truly human and understands our struggle. The Samaritan woman She's surprised that a Jewish Jesus is asking her, a Samaritan, for water. She speaks her surprise, and Jesus answers, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Now, as readers, I think we hear gift of God, and we can't help but thinking God so loved the world that he gave his only son. We know who is saying, give me a drink. Jesus, the eternal word. Uh, The person through whom all things were made that have been made. Uh, The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The God-man who turned water to wine. The the one who speaks uh, God's words and has given God's spirit without measure to do that. He's asked her for water to satisfy his thirst. If she knew who was asking and what he offers, she'd be asking for living water. Now, there's lots of misunderstanding in John. She misunderstands him, just like like Nicodemus misunderstood new birth. See, living water is one way to speak about fresh water, running, drinkable water, as opposed to still stagnant water. And that's all she hears Jesus offering. She can't see how he can give her drinkable water because there he is sitting where he has nothing to use to get water out from the bottom of the well. So where's he going to get it, she asks. Verse 12, she then says, Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. See, there's no doubt in her mind at all, Jesus is not greater than Jacob. When Jacob was right on that spot and wanted to get water for himself and give water, he dug a well, he dropped a bucket, and he pulled it up. That's how he got drinkable water for himself. That's how he gave drinkable water to his sons and livestock and gave water to generation after generation after generation of his descendants and even to this Samaritan woman and the other people who are still coming to get water from the well. In her mind, it's clear, Jacob gave the gift of water that kept on giving. Empty-handed Jesus can't do better than that. Of course, she's underestimating Jesus. He is absolutely better than, greater than Jacob. But she's also underestimating what he offers. Verse 13, Jesus says, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I will give will never be thirsty again. And explains what he means. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. He's offering her eternal life. He's saying she should ask him for eternal life. Life stretching out into the everlasting future. The good life of the age to come when there is no more crying or dying, pain or shame. A taste of it now and the enjoyment of it eternally. The joy of knowing God as Father 
uh, the living, true and holy and loving God and Jesus whom he has sent to save, Jesus is offering her eternal life. Now, we looked at it two weeks ago and a bit last week. Chapter 3 told us the alternative, perishing in judgment and, salvation, judgment and condemnation. God's wrath remaining on people who deserve his anger for the damage they've done to the world he made and to people he placed them with, for the dishonor we've done in disobeying our maker, God gave his son so a bad world could be offered and given a good eternal future. Eternal life? Eternal life is a gift that is eternal life is a gift that gives better and a gift that keeps giving longer than the water Jacob gave. She says, Sir, give me this water. Give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. She hasn't heard the eternal life bit, has she? She's just heard the never thirsty again. She wants that. All she hopes for is an end to the daily drudgery of drawing water from a deep well. She'd be satisfied with a tap in her kitchen that gives clean, fresh water every time she turns it on. She's still only hearing Jesus offer physical water. She can't see any way for him to give it. But if he can give it, she wants it. This water that just keeps on flowing. But Jesus isn't offering modern plumbing to the ancient world. Whether she realizes it or not, she needs so much more. In our comfortable world, we need so much more. To help her see it and to help us see it, Jesus points to her sin. He says, verse 16, uh, go call your husband and come here. She says, I have no husband. And that's technically true, but Jesus says, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, uh, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Now, whether because of death or divorce, uh, remarriage was, uh, was common enough in the first century. Uh, from what I've read, a second or third marriage, uh, that was seen as misfortune. Uh, going for a third, a fourth, a fifth, well, that was frowned on. Whatever sin may have been, may have been involved in that long string of marriages, it's very clear she is now sinning. She's sleeping with a man who is not her husband. Jesus gently raises the issue. He begins by saying, you're right. He ends by saying what you've said is true. But in, this, in, the, in between, he shows her her sin. It's his kindness to put his finger on her failure. So he isn't having a go. He's not saying it to shame her. Now, the men and women of the time, they probably did shame her. You know, the usual time to draw water was the cool of the evening. And she's probably come at midday in the heat to avoid the looks and the comments. But Jesus doesn't point to her sin to shame her. He points to it to show her what she really needs. 
He's helping her see what he is really offering. She has bigger problems than daily thirst and the drudgery of drawing water. Her biggest need is to have her sin taken away. And she is speaking to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. She's part of a bad world which will perish in judgment and condemnation because of sin. And she is talking to the Son God gave in order that whoever believes in him might not perish but have eternal life. Will she believe in him? Will she put her trust in him? Perhaps we see her beginning, verse 19. He said enough to convince her that, she, that he is a prophet. Remember, Jewish prophet. Now, maybe the, the next thing she says, uh, maybe it's her attempt to distract from the uncomfortable truth of her sin. Look at verse 20. Isn't this the obvious question for someone to ask when they've seen their sin? Where should she sacrifice? You see, worship on Mount Gerizim and worship in the temple in Jerusalem both meant bloodshed. Both meant sacrifice. It meant the sacrifices that God required in the Old Testament books that Jews and Samaritans agreed on. The central aspect of worship at both was offering sacrifices to get forgiveness. I don't think she's changing the subject at all. She's asking a Jewish prophet where she should sacrifice. Verse 20, our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. The mountain, that's the one beside them, Mount Gerizim, where the Samaritans sacrificed in the ruins of the temple uh, destroyed by that Jewish ruler. Uh, Jer- Jerusalem, it's the temple where the, the Jews brought their sacrifices. She's saying to the Jewish man, she now sees as a prophet, we Samaritans worship up here. You Jews say we're wrong, it should be over there. Which one? Jesus says, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. In other words, don't worry about it. It doesn't matter. An enormous change is coming. Soon they'll both be obsolete. They'll both be wrong. Then Jesus says, you Samaritans worship what you do, verse 22, what you do not know. We Jews worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. See, Samaritans and Jews would both be wrong to insist on one place or the other, but by rejecting the prophets who have been speaking since Moses, the Samaritans have been wrong for a long while. So it's, when Jesus says their salvation is from the Jews, now it's true that salvation, as in the Savior, is from the Jews, but it's not really what Jesus is getting at here. What Jesus is getting at is that God has been unfolding his plan of salvation to the Jews Generation after generation after generation, sending prophet after prophet after prophet. So they know. They've heard the Lord God's unfolding plan and promise. They've heard him say what he will do to save. They've heard him speak about himself. 
They know him and his salvation plan. But the Samaritans don't. Or at least they know him less because they've heard less of his truth. Because generations ago they rejected and continued to reject the prophets God sent to the Jews. I mean, Jesus points to that salvation message being carried by the Jews. That implies that Jerusalem is the place, not Mount Gerizim. But Jesus doesn't even go there. He doesn't need to because they're both obsolete. Verse 23, he says, the hour is coming. And the hour in John's gospel is the hour of Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension. That's the time that changes everything. But even before the temple of his body is destroyed and raised in three days, already now, verse 23, now the hour is here when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Now, even then, Jesus, the eternal Son of God, is here. So true worship is worship of the Father. And the Father is seeking true worshippers to worship him. Now, notice where he's seeking in Samaria. Notice who he's seeking. A woman with a questionable past and a sinful present. Now we need to think a bit about this stuff about true worshippers and what it means to worship in spirit and truth. Verse 24 is really helpful. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. It's necessary. That's the way it must be. God is spirit. He is spiritual. He's invisible. He's not physical and material. So in a sense, those hundreds of years stretching back of God being worshipped in a particular bit of geography, in a sense, they're kind of a bit strange. Actually, nearly a thousand years before Jesus was born, Solomon saw how strange it was when he dedicated the temple. Fresh-built temple being dedicated for for its beginning to be used. And Solomon asked, will God indeed dwell on earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain him, how much less this house that I have built. He was very clear. People prayed, sacrificed, prayed towards the temple, but God heard in heaven. God has always been spiritual and invisible, not physical and material. So what's changed? What, 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 when Jesus said, but now, what's changed? What's the hour? Well, what's changed is that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, the glory as of the only, as of the only Son of the fa- from the Father, full of grace and truth. What's changed is that the Word, the only God who is at the Father's side, has made the never-seen God known. What's changed is that the temple in Jerusalem has been replaced and surpassed by the temple of Jesus' body. What's changed is that the lamb has been sacrificed for the sin of the world. On the cross, Jesus worshipped for us and on our behalf as he sacrificed himself for the forgiveness of our sins. What's changed is that Jesus and his Father give the helper 
the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Truth, to their people. So that means that now you can't work out who the true worshipper is by looking at where they're standing, Mount Gerizim or Mount Zion, Jerusalem, the temple. True worshippers are people who are born again by the Spirit's work, who have a new nature. As chapter 3, verse, verse 6 puts it, uh, what is born of flesh is flesh, what is born of the Spirit is spirit. True worshippers are people who are born again by the Spirit's work and have that new spiritual nature. True worshippers are people from every tongue and tribe and language and nation to whom the Spirit gives life. And the Spirit gives life as they meet the true God who has never been seen by meeting Jesus. And the rest of this chapter is the Samaritan woman and many people from her town meeting Jesus. Not just meeting him, believing his word. Her and really their expectation of a Messiah Christ was that Deuteronomy chapter 18 prophet like Moses who would speak the very words of God. Uh, and Jesus says that he is the Messiah Christ. And she begins to think, hey, maybe probably he is because he's told her everything she's ever done. So she leaves her water jar. She goes back into town and says, come see the, a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? While she's away, the disciples uh, try to get Jesus to eat. Jesus says, verse 34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. The Father's work is the harvest of men, women, and children not perishing but having eternal life. And Jesus tells his disciples, hey, it's harvest time. Moses and the others have sown. It's time to rape. And as he's speaking to them, a field of Samaritans uh, from town come to Jesus. Verse 39, they're coming because of the woman's testimony. Jesus stays for two days. He's obviously teaching them because in verse 41, uh, <clears throat> it says that many more believe because of his word. Now, I think what we're supposed to see here is Jesus entrusting himself to these Samaritans. Remember that little bit at the end of chapter 2 where the Jerusalem Jews who believed in Jesus because of the miracles but Jesus knew what sort of belief it had that it wasn't the belief that would last. We didn't entrust himself to them. Well, these Samaritans, they, they hear about something amazing but then when they hear Jesus' words, they believe Jesus' words. We see him entrusting himself to these saved Samaritans. Isn't it beautiful to hear what they say to the woman in verse 42? It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. That's what Jesus has been teaching them about himself, that he is the Savior of the world, Samaritans included. And they're believing and trusting in him. And they're there because just like Andrew and Philip back in chapter 1 who brought Peter and Nathaniel, 
she brought them to Jesus. And they met Jesus and they trusted Jesus. We're supposed to see that here in Samaria, we're supposed to see that here in Samaria, the Father has found true worshippers. How will they worship? In spirit and truth. Well, what does that mean? Well, it's obviously independent of place. It's God-centered, not temple-centered. People talk about in spirit, meaning something like genuine, authentic, deep down, my spirit. Uh, In truth, meaning biblical truth, reflecting what God says in the Bible. Both of those are very good things. But wholehearted and biblical aren't really what Jesus is focusing on here. The phrase, in spirit and truth, it's kind of like a location. It's a where. Those who are born of the Spirit are spirits and can serve and honor God in the realm of the Spirit. Those who know Jesus and his word know the living and true God in truth. That is, it's mainly about who the worshipers are as those in whom the Spirit has worked new life and who the worshipers come through as those who know God and salvation in his Son. In Spirit and in truth is mainly about who the worshipers are as those in whom the Spirit has worked to give life and who the worshipers come through as those who know God and his salvation through his Son. Now, singing and meeting are part of that. Still, people keep using worship as the word to talk about singing and meeting, or meeting and maybe just singing. But when people call that worship as if everything else is something else, well, it's not something the Bible says. They're just part of living Monday to Sunday in spirit and truth to give glory to God who saved us. True worship is living Monday to Sunday with the priority on pleasing and honoring God who saved us. True worship is living Monday to Sunday with the priority on living in godliness and holiness and love. Doing his work of mission. It's the way we treat people God has placed us with. Friends, parents, spouse, children, sojourners. It's the hidden life of our thoughts and conscience, will and passions. It's all of life lived in line with the truth of God made known in his Son who saves and enabled by the Spirit who gives life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that as we read your word and meet your son, we see him as the one who understands our human struggles. Father, we thank you that we see him as the one who points to and reveals our greatest need. Father, please do grip us with our native forgiveness. 
Please convict and convince us that Jesus is enough, that when he promises to give eternal life, forgiveness now, experience of knowing you now as our Father and him as our Savior now and eternally into the future beyond the resurrection, please convince us that he is able and will give what he promises to those who take him up on his promise. And Father, as we put our trust in him and put our trust in you, uh, please do strengthen and enable us by your Spirit to live in the context of knowing you truly in your Son, of knowing your work in us by your Spirit, to live to please and honor you in every aspect of Monday to Sunday. Father, we ask that we who trust your Son would live in godliness and holiness and love, that we'd be eager to be at your work of proclaiming your Son, that we'd think through how we can please you in all the relationships that you've placed us in, that you would be at work in our hearts, tuning our thoughts and consciences, wills and passions to what is eternally true. Father, we ask that more and more we will live life in line with the truth of who you are made known to us in your Son who saves, and that we'd live it enabled by the Spirit who gives life. In the Lord Jesus, amen.